Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Will Sipling, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Eugene Schlesinger about his new book, Sacrificing the Church, Mass, Mission, and Ecumenism, published in 2019 by Lexington Books and Fortress Press. Gene teaches in the Department of Religious Studies at Santa Clara University. He is an Episcopalian systematic theologian, primarily engaged in Catholic theology and specializing in ecclesiology and sacramental theology. Gene, thanks for coming on to the show. Very happy to be here. So that's a very short introduction. Uh, and obviously, you've been accomplishing many things uh, in your time teaching there. Any gaps you'd like to fill in or anything else you'd like to let listeners know about who you are, what you do, and any other details that I might have missed? So one bit of curiosity that comes with that uh, biographical description is the fact that I am an Episcopalian, um, but the theological work I do is almost exclusively happening within the sort of Catholic ambit. And that's, you know, in part due to my own training. Uh, I'm a product of Jesuit higher education. And I'm also, you know, continuing to teach at a Jesuit institution. Uh, in my graduate teaching, I am engaged with um, preparation of lay pastoral ministers and uh, sometimes diaconal candidates for uh, Catholic diocese in our state. And so uh, just sort of by dint of vocation, I've been drawn into the world of Catholic systematic theology. And that's where I you know, most comfortably live and breathe and have my being, even if uh, in terms of my own ecclesial commitments, I'm in a different church. Uh, so, well, practically speaking, then that means that you probably have some unique perspectives that you're bringing to the arguments and to the details that you're including in this book, as it is a book about, as you said, about the mass mission and ecumenism. And obviously that word mass there sounds something that we would generally associate with Roman Catholicism. And that sounds like a great way to just segue into the book itself. Now, before we jump into those main sections, maybe you could tell us first a little bit about what you mean by each of these words, mass, mission, and ecumenism. Sure. Um, so the, the three you know, subtitular categories that I have for the book are each a shorthand for a larger reality. Uh, so, you know, when I talk about mass, I'm talking not just about, you know, the church's celebration of the Eucharist, but rather uh, the church's life of worshiping God expressed in its, in its liturgies. Uh, and so in the book I talk, in my chapter on mass, I talk not just about the mass, but also uh, practices of daily prayer and the Christian liturgical year and and things like that. And it's all sort of summed up in this notion of the mass. Uh, when I refer to mission, I'm I'm talking essentially about the way that the church extends itself beyond itself into the world, uh, engaging with those who aren't necessarily part of the church, those who aren't necessarily Christians, it's it's an expansive concept as well. It, it refers, you know, of course, to those sort of classic understandings of what mission is, the proclamation of the gospel, but uh, also extends beyond that towards concrete action within the world in order to... Um, address injustices, uh, to work towards the development of peoples, uh, things like that. Um, items that were fairly important in Jesus's own mission. He wasn't just preaching. He was also engaged in a more holistic sort of, uh, life and ministry. And then finally, ecumenism, uh, is most broadly referring to the church's efforts to see the unity of all peoples, but especially as that plays itself out in its efforts to restore its own lost unity. Uh, so the, the efforts of the divided church to restore full visible unity. And taken together, I argue that 
these three aspects of the church's life form its agenda in the contemporary world. Uh, so we've sort of lost our moorings, so to speak. It's a time when um, so many of the cultural assumptions that had obtained in in previous centuries, even previous decades, no longer obtain. And the churches are facing all sorts of crises, uh, internal crises, external crises, um, decline is precipitous, and we need to figure out who we are and what we're doing. And so this mass mission and ecumenism are sort of my answer to that. What is the church supposed to be doing now? So, so is this a big kind of inspiration for your book? You're, you're looking at specific problems that exist in the world today as you see them and trying to fill in some gaps with some particular answers, or do you have some other sort of underlying principle that you're going for? I mean, on its own, obviously that makes a lot of sense and that resonates with me for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, fundamentally I'm, I'm a churchman. I, I care deeply about the Christian church. And so when it appears harassed and harried, uh, or sometimes our problem is that we can't get out of our own way. Uh, I, I, I want to help us recover our bearings. I want to get us back to our foundation. And that foundation is the gospel of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, Paul talks about knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. And that's sort of the, the, the manifesto uh, for, for this work that you know, I'm trying to locate all of these key areas of what the church is and what the church should be doing in that foundational reality of the paschal mystery of Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, so yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get the gospel back at the center of what the church is. Well, that makes sense. That also makes sense. That's why you would start in, in chapter one with this Trinitarian soteriology. It's really this identity uh, of, as you say, the one sacrifice of Christ. And it is in some ways centered on the work of the cross, um, but also on the last supper and also on Pentecost. I mean, sometimes you see the last supper as sort of a, uh, a synonym for what one might call Eucharist or mass or Holy communion, but you've also connected it with Pentecost as well. Can you tell us how these three are linked together in the first chapter and why they're really the foundation, the beginning sections for the rest of the book as being stated there in the first chapter? Yes. Well, as, as you mentioned, that first chapter is devoted to articulating a Trinitarian soteriology and an account of salvation as rooted in and as sharing in the life of God as Trinity. And so what I am laboring to do in that chapter is to develop a theology of the divine missions, the sending of the Son and the Holy Spirit into the world, and do so in a way that shows the connection between those missions and the eternal processions that constitute the life of God. So eternally, God is the Trinity, by which I mean the, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, uh, and the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. And my guide for understanding these Trinitarian processions is Hansers von Balthasar, who sort of casts his understanding of the life of the Trinity in Eucharistic terms, to where the Son's generation is described in terms of a gift. The Father gives the gift of being of the divine essence to the son uh, who then returns the gift um, to the father in, in gratitude by joining the father in the spiration of the Holy spirit. And so we have this dynamic of gift and return gift that simply is God. 
and then and and this would be god even if god were the only thing to exist even if god had never created us um but then after god has created us uh our deepest identity as creatures our ontological foundation is is meant to be a sharing in that dynamic we receive our being from god and and ought to return ourselves to god and sin is the disruption of that dynamic the the refusal of the gift and so the mission of the son and of the holy spirit is a mission of restoring that dynamic of of bringing us back into this flow of gift and return gift and and so <clears throat> following thomas aquinas who balthazar is also following i understand the missions to be identical to the processions only directed outwardly. And so in the mission of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, in the life of Jesus, we see uh, this same Trinitarian dynamic unfolding, only transposed into creaturely terms, into human terms. And so and that's a long way of getting back to those three points that you mentioned, uh, the cross, the Last Supper, and the event of uh, Pentecost. Because in each of these events, we see that dynamic of gift and return gift. We see Jesus acknowledging that he receives who he is from the Father, and then gratefully returning the gift in the Holy Spirit. Um, at, at the cross, Jesus, uh, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, and, and breathes his last. He expires, and, and Balthazar sees this as a reflection of that Trinitarian life of God, only brought into the terms of our concrete human situation, and in such a way as to bring us back into the dynamic. Uh, and so anyway, each of those you know, three vignettes I uh, pursue as reflections of this eternal Trinitarian dynamic. And as well, these these three events, and in the giving and the receiving that goes on in each of them, there seems to be also this connection with the Mass and with mission and ecumenism as well. And that's setting the ground stage for that. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, uh, to be sure. Um in, in each case, this is a mission of inclusion. We are brought into this, and we're brought into it together. And so, you know, as we are restored to the dynamic, that corresponds to the idea of Mass. We, we offer ourselves to God along with His Son. Um, we, in doing so, we are called to extend that love to others, which corresponds basically to mission. And and we're all in this together. No one gets to come back to God just by him or herself, uh, but only in the company of all of those whom Christ has redeemed. And so that necessarily is a goad towards ecumenism, towards the unity of all peoples. And that all makes sense, especially tied in with how you're saying you're, you're looking at Balthazar, you know, this great Roman Catholic theologian, and he's looking back at St. Thomas um, and there seems to be this connection with this gift giving throughout the work of Christian theologians, especially including Augustine, who takes up the majority of, of chapter two. But I have to ask why Augustine? You know, he is somewhat of a controversial character, maybe in today's uh, ecclesial conversations. But you really wanted to make sure that that you included him here. Why was that? And what does he offer to the conversation? Yeah, well, you know... <sighs> You are right to note that uh, Augustine is a controversial figure now. Sort of all of the woes of Western theology tend to get blamed on him, but you know he, he is just a foundational figure for the church. You know, for for good or ill, and I think you know by and large for good. But uh, what what I really gain from Augustine here is an articulation of these themes that I was just describing only in terms of a theology of sacrifice. 
So what I what I just described from von Balthasar is is really nice soteriology, but it's not yet sacrificial as such. Augustine, uh, particularly in uh, the City of God, develops an account of what he calls true sacrifice, which is in contrast to you know the false sacrifices that were offered by the pagans, and this true sacrifice um, is. He glosses it as any act that is done to bind humanity and God together in a holy fellowship. Uh, so it's at once very expansive. You know, any act that accomplishes this is properly speaking sacrifice. But he also uh, fairly radically constricts it such that the true sacrifice is Christ's sacrifice. Um, and when you locate that within the broader context of Augustine's work um, in, in his corpus, it's the sacrifice then names the way that humanity is brought back to God through the incarnate son. Uh, at its most basic level, that's what it means. And, and so by Augustine giving us this account of sacrifices, coming back to God through the son, and expanding it in such a way that it can be all-encompassing, and yet constricting it in such a way that all true sacrifice is really Christ's, uh, he, he gives us a way of articulating the Christian life as unfolding in union with and in dependence upon Christ, so that our our moral lives um, are are able to be offered as as true sacrifices to God, but only in union with Christ. Only only insofar as we are integrated into what he calls the the totus Christus, the whole Christ. Uh, and so that Augustinian account of sacrifice winds up allowing us to sort of integrate. Uh, a totality of Christian existence into uh, a very sort of compact expression that can then be applied in various arenas. Um, and then, you know, I just think Augustine's right. You know, I know he, he maybe said things that, well, he did say things that um, either actually are problematic or are deemed problematic, uh, whether or not we understand what he actually said. Uh, but by and large, he's a really good guide to understanding Christ and the Trinity and, and, and the gospel. He's certainly central to you know what what you speak often about this uh, Catholic this universal understanding. You know Augustine is 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 you know as a church father you know helping form this early Christian teaching, as well centering it on Christ. It seems to answer this problem that is included with sacrifice, which is the problem of violence that seems necessarily connected. Can you talk a little bit more about how in this book you define how the Christological centrality of this all helps to redeem violence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and one, one thing you just said uh, about Augustine being a Catholic figure in that sort of broader universal sense is, is another reason that he's worthwhile because sort of everyone has a claim on him. You know, Catholics do, uh, Lutherans do, uh, Calvinists do. And so he is sort of a, a, a doctor of the church held in common by some really disparate traditions. And so, um, you know, I can, I can draw from a figure that everyone looks to and uh, has some heritage with, at least in the West. Uh, but moving on to the question of sacrificial violence, you know, that is the sort of elephant in the room. And what I try to do in, in the book is to provide an account of sacrifice that is at once fundamentally and essentially nonviolent, and yet one that does not deny the reality of violence or try to sanitize the notion of sacrifice. So, you know, it seems that we, we tend to 
have two options when we're talking about sacrifice and violence. One is to say, you know, sacrifice is, you know, this sort of barbaric, bloodthirsty, violent sort of affair, you know, by which we work out our aggressions or appease bloodthirsty deities or, or what have you. That's, that's sort of a common trope. Uh, or to say, no, you know, sacrifices is, is nonviolent and, you know, basically there's, but, but articulate sacrifice as nonviolent in such a way as to not really be adequate to the data, to the fact that in the Old Testament, animals were getting their throats slit. Uh, and in the New Testament, Jesus gets, you know, beaten and, and nailed to a cross. Uh, and so what I, what I try to do by way of uh, understanding violence is, is to locate the essence of sacrifice's meaning in that Trinitarian dynamic that we were talking about, this idea of gift and return gift. And to recognize that fundamentally there's nothing violent about giving or receiving or returning gifts. Um, to give a gift, to give oneself as a gift, to return oneself as a gift is not an instance of loss, not an instance of violence, but rather something that fulfills us. Uh, because the fullness of reality, God, is gift. Um, but then to recognize that this dynamic of gift and return gift can take on different forms, different contingent forms, so that, you know, under the conditions of sin, a gift can be painful. You know, sometimes, sometimes it, insofar as we don't want to give a gift, um, it, it might hurt. Uh, and then this is to say nothing of the ways that, um, you know, abuse can, can happen. So, you know, there, there's also those instances where, uh, it's not just that we are resistant to the gift, but that someone else is harming us. And, and that's a different issue entirely. Um, but just to recognize that these are forms that this dynamic can take, uh, so that we aren't denying the reality that, you know, Jesus suffered, animals died. Uh, but, but to say that essentially what sacrifice is, isn't something that is violent. Um, the, the violence that Jesus underwent on the cross is not his sacrifice. Uh, what is his sacrifice is his gift of himself to us and to the father. And, that and gift, it's this hostility of sin that makes it violent. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially combined with the fact that you, as you've mentioned, an Episcopalian doing Catholic theology, you know, there could be some, you know, whether in, as they're sometimes called, historical documents or some Anglican formulations of theology, maybe a discomfort with the language of sacrificial language, especially when connected to the Eucharist, but with how you're sort of as it were, recapitulating uh, violence and sacrifice and sacrifice. The sacrificial part is the gift giving. Would you say that this makes this more acceptable than in an ecumenical scenario to paint sacrifice less about the, the offering per se and the violence there, but more about the participation with God and human beings? Yeah, I, I, I would certainly hope so at least. So, you know, in, in the last you know, 50 years or so, we've had a lot of consensus emerge on this question within ecumenical circles. And in part, that's based on historical research where we just, you know, the deeper you go into the origins of the Eucharist, we just see that these sacrificial understandings have been there essentially from the very beginning. Um, and so, you know, when it's there so early, it's just, it becomes, you know, perhaps not uncontroversial to say that the Eucharist is a sacrifice, but it also seems fairly incontestable. It's just as long as there have been Christians, we've been talking about the Eucharist as a sacrifice. And so what I want to do here is, you know, assume or maybe even just bracket the question of, is the Eucharist a sacrifice? And sort of work with the ecumenical consensus 
that in some sense we can talk about it as a sacrifice, and instead ask, what does it mean to talk about the Eucharist as a sacrifice? Uh, and, and so our explanations of, of what Eucharistic sacrifice means can be better or worse. There, there can be explanations of it that um, should be troubling to not just Protestants, but also Roman Catholics. Um, but then what I try to do is provide an articulation of it that is cognizant of the sorts of issues that have been historically raised from uh, the Protestant side about uh, Eucharistic sacrifice and, and, and show that uh, it can be articulated in such a way as to uphold those areas of concern. So as you said, that, you know, this is fundamentally about God's gift to us. Uh, and, and everything that the church does is dependent upon Christ, uh, rather than this sort of like sacrifices what we do to appease God, uh, sort of understanding. Well, that seems like a good segue then into the third chapter, this first interlude, as you call it, where you begin talking about the first of those three subtitles, the Mass, then. You say at the beginning of that section that the Mass is a fitting synecdoche for the Church's total liturgical life. What what do you mean by that? There's a lot rolled in that statement, so I realize that's kind of a big question. <laughs> there is. Yeah, well, and and so there I'm, I'm essentially borrowing from the Vatican II's constitution on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which describes the Eucharist as the source and summit of the Christian life. And so there's this idea that, you know, everything that the church is and does in some way flows from and then tends back towards the Eucharist, which is, you know, the gift of God to us in Christ. Um, and so you know, all, all of the church's worship is in some way responsive to and in some way participates in this gift of Christ. Uh, you know, only, only the Eucharist is the Eucharist, um, but the same reality that is celebrated in the Eucharist is also celebrated in other dimensions of worship, the mystery of, of God in Christ. It also seems like a good time to introduce then uh, Henri de Lubac's spiritual exegesis. How do we see these other aspects Eucharistically, as it were? Yeah, so in Henri de Lubac's theology of spiritual exegesis, he is concerned especially with the relationship between the two testaments and and seeing in them a pattern of promise and fulfillment and which is then reproduced in in the lectionary cycle where you have an old testament reading paired with new testament readings uh, often often the gospel and and in this thematic Pairing, we see the heart of what de Lubac is is getting at with with spiritual exegesis, namely that the mystery of Christ, um, the incarnation, and then his work of redemption, are the spiritual sense of Scripture. Uh, that uh, all of you know, the the literal sense of scripture is summed up in this spiritual sense of of Christ and Him crucified. Uh, the message of the Bible, so to speak, is precisely that mystery and our coming to share in it. And the the prime area where he still sees that operative is in the lectionary. So he recognizes, okay, we have historical critical exegesis now, and we, we can't pretend as if that's not a thing. We don't want to turn back the clock per se. What matters is, so he's not advocating for a methodology of reading the Bible, uh, among other things. Uh, what, what matters is this doctrinal core that we recognize 
Christ as the center of revelation and particularly uh, the mystery of redemption in Christ. And, you know, it's in, in the liturgy that we still see that primarily with that promise and fulfillment structure. Well, walk us through then your understanding of the liturgy and the Eucharistic prayer. You do give us something of a walkthrough in the book. You start off with, with, with the anaphora. You take us then to the sanctus and the epiclesis. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about how you're seeing these pieces fit together. And also maybe if you can comment on the ecumenical aspects of this, for instance, for churches whose liturgies don't include some of these same pieces. Sure. Well, looking at the the eucharistic prayer specifically you know this is it's it's coming at at the end of the sunday liturgy we've we've gone through first the liturgy of the word where we have this you know christ as the fulfillment of scripture kind of thing happening um where we have god gathering uh the the people and <clears throat> sort of exercising them in this mystery through the liturgy of the word. And then uh, turning the corner to the liturgy of the Eucharist, we, we have the Eucharistic prayer and its structure essentially reproduces that same dynamic that I was talking about earlier with the doctrine of the Trinity, this pattern of gift and return of gift. And, and it plays out uh, in, in three different sort of narrative programs. And here I'm drawing from uh, the French theologian, Louis-Marie Chauvet. Uh, but he sees these three narrative programs where, you know, after the Sanctus, you first have uh, this narrating of God's saving work in Christ. You know, God, God sent Jesus after we had sinned to redeem us. And the different Eucharistic prayers articulate that in different ways. But there, and so you know, we, God gives us Christ, we give God thanks in, in return for that. Um, so there's, you know, sort of the first narrative program. The second narrative program uh, focuses more specifically on the sacramental Eucharist. It, it begins with the institution narratives on the night before he suffered, our Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and then goes through all of that, do this in remembrance of me. And so this, again, replays that same dynamic. We have the gift of Christ's body and blood, um, and then, you know, the return gift of, of our own gratitude, or in some of the prayers, the, the, uh, the loaf and the cup are offered back to God. Um, so again, gift, return gift, and then, uh, and again, gift and return gift, and what is given is Christ. Uh, and then in the third of the narrative programs, we have a focus on the church, which is also the body of Christ. Um, there are prayers that, you know, those of us who receive the sacrament of Holy Communion would be made one body with Christ and would serve God in the world. And finally, be brought, you know, to to dwell with him and all the saints. You know, again, the the different prayers parse it differently, and so again, we have this: we receive our own identity as the church here, as the body of Christ, and then we also return the gift this time by placing ourselves at God's disposal to serve Him in the world, which is a bridge towards mission, and. You know, so there we see that same pattern played out. Now, that's very clear in churches that use, you know, sort of set liturgical Eucharistic prayers. Um, you know, the same pattern can be found in the Roman Missal, can be found in the Episcopal Book, Book of Common Prayer. Uh, the Methodist version has it. Uh, ecumenical Presbyterians have that. Um, it's there. And in, in traditions that don't have these set elements, I think that same basic pattern of gift and return gift is still there. It's not necessarily made as explicit. You know, you're still going to have the reading of scripture and you're going to have some sort of response of praise when they are celebrating 
Holy Communion, they're typically going to at least recite those words of institution. And so there's this recognition that here is a gift and, you know, we are, we are doing something in response to it, you know, so there is that implicit gift and return gift. Uh, And so, and, and what I've described here, this notion of like receiving God's gifts in Christ and then placing ourselves at his disposal uh, I think that's just the basic shape of the Christian life. And so whether or not it is explicitly thematized in a church's liturgy, that these are all, all patterns of Christian discipleship that, that would be shared by all churches. And, you know, so maybe there's a, a possibility here to, to make those dynamics more explicit and more thematic. To, to bring them into our intentionality. And you mentioned that those things have to do with discipleship, which of course in some ways has something to do then there with mission. So the mass, as it says, the heading of chapter four, interlude two, the mass flows into mission. So what's the connection there? Obviously, if you're Episcopalian or Roman Catholic, maybe the service closes with some phrase like the mass has ended, let's go forth, thanks be to God. So how are you connecting that here in the book? Yeah, well, so I, I want to go back to the Eucharistic prayer because sure, that's essentially sure. where I, I see this happening. And so in that third movement where, you know, you have this reception of, okay, we are the body of Christ. Uh, and then every gift is calling for a return gift. Um. And that return gift necessarily needs to be fulfilled outside of the liturgy. Um, you know, receiving, receiving the sacramental body of Christ and the elements, you know, we can, we can off, we can return that gift, you know, right away in the liturgy, you know, you lift up the, the host and, and the cup and, you know, say we offer you the, the cup of salvation and, and all that stuff. But when it comes to our identity as the church, our identity as Christ's followers, um, we can only really put that into action outside of the liturgy. We can only put that into action in the world, in in mission. And so um, a necessary part of the fulfillment of the Eucharistic prayer is going to occur in mission. And so that's what I mean by the Mass flows into mission. Um, you know, the Christian life is lived in the world, not in the pews. And this mission, as you state, needs to avoid two extremes. It needs to avoid accommodationalism and oppositionalism. Can you tell us a little bit more about these two poles and how they should be avoided? Sure. Well, as, as you know, we, we've got two poles here. On the one hand, you have accommodationism. And by that, I mean you know, essentially any approach that thinks, okay, we can, we can do our mission by making Christianity as palatable as possible. You know, whether it's Friedrich Schleiermacher making speeches to religions, culture despisers, or, uh, you know, evangelical megachurches developing seeker friendly services where they decide not to put Christian symbolism in the room, you know, trying to remember which place it was, but they didn't have any crosses in their sanctuary just because that was maybe a bridge too far, you know, sort of, so the sort of idea that, oh, we'll, we'll smooth this out and make it more palatable. And then I'm sure people will just sign right up. Uh, so that's accommodationism and it, it, it can have better and worse expressions. Um, and I think oftentimes the motivation for accommodation is, is a good one. It's a desire to remove any unnecessary scandals from Christian proclamation proclamation. Uh, we don't want people to get hung up on, on things that aren't central. Uh, we, 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 we want them to be able to, to hear the gospel without distractions. And that's a good thing. Um, it's just ultimately the gospel is a scandal and, and no amount of accommodating can really efface that. Then on the other hand, we have oppositionalism where you know, we sort of pit 
the church and its gospel in an adversarial relationship with the world. Um, and, you know, again, this can take various forms. One of the most prevalent recent ones has been the idea of the Benedict option, where you sort of retreat into enclave communities, uh, where we're able to, you know, form Christian disciples in a hostile world. Um, and again, there's, there's a measure of truth to that, the idea that the values of, of the gospel aren't always going to be in sync with the values of the, the surrounding culture. And we do need to form people as faithful Christians. Uh, but neither of those are the way of mission, which recognizes that, that our natural location is the world. And, and here the, um, the Vatican II document, Gaudium et Spes, is sort of my watchword. Gaudium et Spes gives a vision of the church as embedded in the world and talks about how the duty of the church in the modern world is to scrutinize the signs of the times and to interpret them in light of the gospel. And so it's a call to be interior to the world, engaged in the world, attentive to what's going on in the world, and and to do so in the gospel's light. And what that's going to mean is that, you know, sometimes there are going to be things going on in the world that the church can and should affirm. And sometimes there are going to be things going on that the church uh, needs to have a, a no for. Um, but we, we can neither uncritically embrace or uncritically reject what's going on in the world. Instead, we need to be discerning uh, and, and engaged with the proclamation of the gospel. So that proclamation, something like a team sport, all the different churches can do evangelism. And obviously there's sort of a, a unity, a teamness to the mass as well. There's one body of Christ and one body, the Christian believers. But that leads us to a contradiction then. And this is where we begin talking about ecumenism. And that contradiction then is the fact that, as you say, the church is divided. What do we do about this? And what are your suggestions for the church, perhaps found through the means of the Mass and mission together? Yeah, well, as, as you note, there has been a growing recognition that our division presents a scandal to us. And it's a scandal that... Uh, both hampers our ability to engage in mission effectively, because if we're calling all people to be reconciled to God in Christ, if salvation is the regathering of humanity into one in Christ so that we can be presented to uh, his father, and then we've got all these competing factions out there, if it appears that we have not indeed been regathered, then that discounts the plausibility of, of the gospel that the church proclaims. Uh, and in a similar way, it um, stands as, as a contradiction to what we celebrate in the Mass, where the church is called to be one body. And then we're not one body. We're uh, in isolation from each other. Uh, and, and so one of the things that we need to do is to recognize this scandal and not give ourselves easy outs about it. That's uh, the, the section where I write about mass and mission as both dependent upon ecumenism. I'm uh, fairly unrelenting there and in my diagnosis and just talking about the, the very grave and frankly dangerous state of affairs that it is for the church to be divided. Um, and so not giving ourselves excuses, not explaining away division, I think is, is part of it. Because if we are avoiding the truth or if we're avoiding reality, then we're also avoiding repentance. And, um, ultimately it is repentance that the divided churches need. So 
there's the first step. The other way that I proceed here is to, again, look at division and unity within the context of Christ's sacrifice, where um, Christ has offered himself in order to bring us all together. And what I do, and here I'm following um, a fellow Episcopalian, Ephraim Radner, who, and also uh, Robert Jensen to an extent, um, recognizes that really the problem of Christian division is not so much that we disagree with each other, but rather that we don't want to be united with each other. Uh, and we see this dynamic play out as, you know, communions engage in dialogue and then resolve whatever issue they divided over. And yet now we found new issues that we need to be divided over. It seems no amount of agreement is ever enough to bring us back together. Um, and that's because Christian unity is not agreement with each other. Christian unity is communion with one another in Christ. And uh, so finding, I mean, agreement is good and ecumenical dialogue is important and I, I endorse it in the book. But if we think we're going to agree our way to unity, that's perhaps part of the reason that we're not finding unity again, because our unity is more than agreement. And so uh, I try to provide an alternative account of Christian unity. And again, this is this is drawn from Ephraim Radner. And it's a unity that's grounded in the cross. Um, Jesus gives himself on the cross, not just to those with whom he agrees, but to those who are opposed to him, uh, to those who um, are, are alienated from his God and Father. And, and so at times, at least Christian unity can also be a unity of enemies, a uni unity across disagreements. Um, you don't have to agree with someone either doctrinally or morally to be in communion with them because Jesus doesn't have to do that. Uh, at the cross, Jesus gives himself fully to and for his enemies and holds them in an, an embrace that won't let go no matter what hostility. And I think ultimately this is what the churches are called to as well, that um, even those that we think are wrong, we recognize that we belong together because of the sacrifice of Christ. And so we hold on to each other. And in that way, we participate in that sacrifice. And this, this doesn't mean, you know, capitulation. It doesn't mean letting go of the truth or whatever. It means holding on to a deeper truth, the truth of Christ's gospel, and living it out in painful and sometimes costly ways. I must admit, there was a lot of ground to cover in this last section. As you said, you were fairly unrelenting. But I think that there is a rhetorical power in that because you are trying to highlight what is truly a big issue. If I can just read one little section from page 130, you say, uh, we are all afflicted by a state of division, which makes mockery of our Eucharists and casts our soul's salvation into doubt. So you see this these two prongs of Eucharist and Mass and soul salvation mission there. So really, these all of these three things, I think you've combined very, very well. But we have taken a lot of your time. But on that note, is there anything else you just wanted to wrap up, some, some final thoughts before we close out? I think the, the main parting thought I'd want to leave us with is, and especially when we you know, you just read that very, uh, kind of stark, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm unrelenting in the book and, you know, we're facing serious situations, but I, I hope that this is a hopeful book and a helpful book because as bleak as the situation might be in, you know, late modern Western societies for the Christian faith, um, 
they're no bleaker than Good Friday or Holy Saturday were. And the resurrection is true. And the resurrection is still our hope. And so what I'm trying to do here is to call us back to that foundation and, and to that hope. Um, and, you know, whether, whether people read the book or not, and I hope you read it, um, I, I hope that we will recognize that we have all that we need in, in the gospel. It seems as though you could make this almost circular. You could read this last chapter here on ecumenism and then revivify that hope in, in, in the gift giving of Christ through the cross back in chapter one again. So I would agree. Yeah, folks, right. yeah do the reread. <laughs> folks yeah. should be reading this book. But before we actually close out, any other projects or maybe books or other things you'd like for us to know about as well? Sure. Well, you know, the, the next major project I'm working on is a study of uh, the theme of salvation in the theology of Henri de Lubac, who we mentioned earlier. And uh, it's, it's looking at and reprising a lot of themes that are expressed in, in this book and sacrificing the church, um, but, you know, obviously on, on a different basis and in different terrain. Uh, but yeah, my, my work on Dulubach is, is sort of what's next. It'll be a while. It's, it's a big undertaking, but you know, look for that eventually. I hope. That's great. And I'm sure the passages on Dulubach here will be a great primer for those who haven't yet read him yet. So when they read this next book that you're working on, but Gene, that sounds like a great project. And if it's anything like this book, I'm sure it'll be a wonderful read, but in any case, thanks for being on the show today. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much. Great. Take care, Gene.